Hey, everybody, and thanks for checking out our award-winning Talking About Cars podcast that has just arrived at Radio.com. Here at Talking About Cars, if you haven't heard, it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities to people you may not even known are car people that have great stories to tell. I'm Randy Cardoon, and for those of you checking out Talking About Cars for the first time, we've been podcasting since November of 2014, and I thought I'd give you a little taste of what we do. Think of it as the Whitman Sampler of podcasting. In our award-winning Best of 2016 podcast, we get some great car stories from some of the top names in the car biz. Also, a lot of good celebrities that you know of, like Henrik Fisker, the man behind the Fisker Karma, and Bo Bachman, who participated in the later versions of the TV classic Pimp My Ride, along with his Galpin Auto Sports. Of course, his family owns the Galpin dealerships in the San Fernando Valley here in California. Let's start off. I asked Henrik about the cars he likes, aside from the ones... He's developed. I try to sort of stick with the cars that I've somewhat been involved with because that keeps the finances in order. If I if I really go wild and start buying a whole bunch of other cars, then uh, you know I gotta have to sell my house and my kids and everybody else. You don't want to do that. <laughs> do you ever do, do you ever catch yourself in the Aston Martin going? My name is Bond, James Bond. Well, I put the music on once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> And there are a bunch of cars out there. Are there any cars that you want? You look and say, you know something? One day, that's number one on my list I want to get. Well, I actually, one thing I missed was to buy a BMW Z8, which, uh, of course, I, I, I worked on, I designed the exterior on. And, uh, you know, it's funny because when it came out, it was the most expensive BMW ever. And it was just something where I thought, you know, I'll buy it when it goes down in price one of these days. And, of course, now they're like triple the price they were new. So You helped design it. Don't you get a discount or something? <laughs> you know, that's what people always think. You get the family and friends discount. Exactly. Which, by the way, is not even as big a discount if you go to Bowen buy a car. <laughs> He'll make you a better deal than they do at the OEM. <laughs> and I don't know how many people know, but you are a crazy Ed Roth guy. And and I and I remember because uh, when they had the Peterson exhibit and the Ed Roth exhibit and they had some other ones, you brought out a bunch of those. Tell me about your interest in the Ed Roth vehicles and which of the ones you have. Well, and you know that's something else that we kind of specialize in in re- in doing restorations is because of this crazy passion with uh, uh, these very uh, uh, unusual automobiles. I'm a huge Ed Roth fan. He just really inspired me when I was a kid. Uh, and uh, actually bought Rotar, which was the Roth flying car, which actually flew on eBay, believe it or not. And uh, a few years later, I remember I, I literally went to someone. I'm like, you know what? We should. Uh, Orbitron got lost years ago. Uh, whatever happened to that car? We got to really see if there was any clues like left over. The last clues were like it was in El Paso in the early 70s. So uh, actually, not long after that, a gentleman by the name of Michael Lightmore found it in Juarez, Mexico. And uh, we, uh, uh, he pulled it out of uh, Juarez, and it was actually in, in a, it was being used as a dumpster outside of a sex shop uh, in the most dangerous city in North America, in the worst part of town. I mean, that's where this thing was, right? That is one of the greatest stories ever. Yeah. And uh, it gets even better, actually, because uh, we took on a restoration to really, I showed it, you know, as it was found for a while, but we want to do a restoration to, to you know, make Roth proud. And also what was beautiful about it was... Cu- 
frankly, leaving all the mistakes uh, because, you know, you look at the like the, the rear taillights and it looked like he closed his eyes and just randomly, you know, just picked holes to put the, the lights in. I'm not kidding, by the way. Uh, but we got uh, uh, Newt, who is the, uh, uh, Newton, who the original designer involved, so we can make sure we got all the shapes correct. Um, we had uh, Larry Watson there to oversee the paint, who painted it original, and uh, also with Billy Carter. Uh, we had, uh, you know, the Roth family that was there. Uh, Perez, who did the interior uh, in, uh, in in 64, did it in his same garage. And, you know, it, so we actually, you know, bringing back the original hands that worked on the car uh, was really an amazing uh, experience. Bachman's Ed Roth collections on display at Calpin Auto Sports here in Southern California. NHRA legend Shirley Muldowney, whose life was featured in the 1983 movie Heart Like a Wheel, drove dragsters hundreds of miles miles an hour down a straightaway but did you know she also flew planes thanks to fellow driver connie coletta let me tell you that guy (laughs) (laughs) he goes around ypsilanti michigan telling perfect strangers that they made a movie about him (laughs) i I mean i i i I kid you not he has the immediate gall to do that connie coletta said it was all about him Oh, well, he, 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 well, you know, when I met Connie, he didn't have two nickels to rub together, but he had a, he had a twin-engine Cessna airplane. And when NHRA threw him out for misbehaving, uh, he had somewhat of a, you know, a little bit of a, he was a, kind of a little bit of a loose cannon back in the 70s. He went ahead and started flying, and he got into the Ford Traffic Division uh, for Ford Motor Company in Detroit, and he would fly freight in his little twin-engine Cessna. So then he steps up and he buys a twin, a, a twin beach with no autopilot, but a twin beach that would carry more faster, uh, a good deal faster, and would carry more freight, more weight. And I used to go with him. And this guy, would he would fly until he could not keep his eyes open for another minute. I mean, he was a, he was a hard worker. I give him that much credit, so he'd go back and lay on a mattress on top of five thousand mufflers, going to Louisville from wherever Buffalo or wherever we would begin the the, the flight, and I would get in the left seat and fly the airplane. Did you know how to fly? No, of course not. <laughs> of course I, I, not. Well, I was I silly had, me. Uh, I had a pretty good touch for it, and I could keep it within a hundred feet elevation. And he taught me how to read the maps. So I knew the roads, how to, okay, it's time, take a left, you know, you know, turn it to the left. And I flew one time from Kansas City to White Sands Proving Grounds in Arizona. Oh, my. Yeah. And, of course, I knew, I knew, you know, I'd watch the skies for airplanes that would seem to be somewhat closer than they should be. But if I wanted to get his attention, I would rock the pedals and flash the lights in the ship. And it would wake him up, and he'd come up front. So one time he came up, and he got in the right seat, and he said, okay, I'm, I want to do something, okay? I'm going to shut an engine down. I want to see if you can hold it. This way, if, if we lost an engine, it'd give him time to get up to the controls if he was in the back of the ship. And I, okay, so he shut one down. Tell you, my heart dropped about to my knees, but, and I, I hung right onto it. And I held it, and he held it for, you know, a couple of minutes. And then he reached down, he turned that fuel knob, 
and that and starved engine came to life, and boy, that propeller started going, and there we were on uh, on two engines. Ah, what a great feeling that was! But I'll tell you, I was incredibly. Uh, I was not. I was proud of myself because I handled it, but I was more proud that Connie trusted me that much. Former American Restoration hosts Rick and Kelly Dale joined us in 2016. They own their own classics. Kelly had the 1958 Ford Convertible, while Rick drives a yellow Willys hot rod. So, Kelly, did you ever drive that Willys? I tried driving Rick's Willys, and it's it's too fast, it's too loud, and the the controls are just too difficult for me. I just like it simple. That's it. Simple. Park, drive, turn it on, turn it off, get out. A little, a little intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, he, his Willys is very fast. It's got that roll bar in the back, and and you know he goes zero to sixty in two point five seconds, right? Yeah, it's very fast. So when she got behind the wheel, I got to be thinking you were kind of looking around the corner. Did you have your hands over your eyes or not? <laughs> I was. I was in the parking. It was in the parking lot. It was like. Uh, it's just both of us. It's the same thing when we learned how to drive. We both got taken to parking lots of, of churches and uh, learned. Our parents taught us how to drive, and uh, so one day I had it parked. And I said, "Just you know, drive it in. You know, drive it around. Take it, take it out." She barely found reverse, and she didn't get to slam it in first gear. So it was. It's hard. It's a B and M uh, shifter, and it you got to know how to lift it up to make it shift gears. But um, so I I wasn't closing my eyes. I was just praying to God that she didn't hit the throttle. That's what insurance is for. <laughs> oh no, 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 no! Insurance makes work. No, no. Uh, you could fix it, right, Rick? Yeah. yeah, but I would hate to. Yeah, I would hate to see it. It'd break my heart. Both would feel bad for Kelly because I guarantee she'd feel terrible. You were talking about the fact that you had gotten rid of a Willys before, and you that's one of the reasons you have one now. Is that the car that you got rid of that you wish you had back, or is there another one? No, that's it. That's the one. I uh, I got rid of it. I was starting to restore it. I painted it, and I had a 427 uh, Tunnel Ram Chevy in it, aluminum. And um, I ended up pulling the motor and putting it in a truck, and it just was sitting there. I needed another motor for a Jeep truck I had, and so I traded the this, I think it was a 396 or something, for um, the Willys. And, I mean, that had to have been in 77, 78 that I did that. And uh, back then, I think I bought it for 1500 and I sold it for 1500 so it was nothing. But now nowadays, you can't touch it. You can't touch a steel Willys. <laughs> is there a car out there that catches your eye something that'd be really cool to own aside from your 58 I, not any classic cars to be honest with you i we've learned uh quite a few valuable lessons in restoring the old vehicles for me i i've always wanted a bentley but <laughs> <laughs> well, i won't be working on that <laughs> But that's always been my, oh, if I had plenty of money to buy a car, that would be a, a white one. I mean, she's always had what she can afford, nice cars. She's had Mercedes and BMWs. She's always had a lot nicer stuff than me. Um, I was always into whatever got me there, and she was into the ride and the class. and That's why her 58's all leather interior. I could never even get in it. I'd, I'd, I mean, it in my cleanest, I'd put a... A dirt spot in it you know what i mean we were in ontario and i remember there was we we were looking at the car and you you just screamed out because we thought there was a rip and it turned out to be a piece of hair or something yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things, and everyone thought I was crazy with getting that white leather interior, but I knew that I'd be the only one riding it, and I didn't care because I'm always clean. <laughs> ben Collins, not a name you may know, but his character on Top Gear UK, he's one of the Stigs. That's right, the mystery driver, wearing all white with the helmet on so you really never saw his face. Ben was also the guy who taught their celebrity guests how to drive in their racetrack time trials. I would uh, treat every individual as an individual. They're, everybody has different needs. Some are overconfident, some need, need boosting, some need moral and psychological guidance. Um, you know, it was a full, full spectrum and it was great fun. So, you know. Uh, who really got it that you didn't think would be able to get it? Um, who surprised you the most, you think? As a trend, the girls did better than the boys. So that's, that was, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, maybe it's not what you'd expect to hear, but girls don't have, a, they have less of an ego. They pick up things. They, they, girls will stop and ask for directions. Guys won't. That's, just, it's just a male thing. Guys think they can drive. They think they're great in bed. Well, it's not always true. And so trying to tell a guy that he's, he's bad at either of those, those um, two favorite sports doesn't always go down well. So you have to try to address these things carefully. And, the, and the, best, the best drivers were always the ones that could listen and could change. And, and, and if you can change, you can learn. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, Tom Cruise went in there and, and nailed it one year. I don't remember which year, but he was in there, and I think he had the fastest time or something like that. He, yeah, he, he was so determined. I mean, if I told him to drive through a tree and then a, and a brick wall, he would have done that if it, was, if it meant a faster time. Um, he was brilliant and uh, the most focused guy we had the entire way. Saying that, um, when they were both there and it was raining, Cameron Diaz um, was faster in the rain. Then it, it and then, uh, but it, you can't. I'm not. I'm not saying you can compare the two because the, the rain was different for Tom. It rained harder when he was in the car. Then it dried out, and he got to really show what he was, you know, capable of because um, it was a dry track. He can you can compare his times then with the other other people, um, and he was amazing. And uh, he really, really just drew in, like you know, everything that I could uh, give him. It was it was really incredible to watch producers were terrified because i kept telling him how to go faster and faster and they're, they're just saying the insurance we, we can't you know the premium is huge just to stop telling him how to go faster and he kept he kept learning and he cut the corner where i asked him to and it, that's when the car went up onto two wheels and that's right, I remember. anybody else any racing driver would have come off the gas and he i could hear him just pushing the gas to go faster who got the closest to wrecking that you remember or did Tom Cruise. So that car was not far off going on its roof, and um, it was great to watch. I mean, other than him, there were a few. That was the Kia, and there were a few before that, and we had a Suzuki that was terrible. And the wheels routinely fell off. So Lionel Richie, the wheel fell off with him. Literally fell off. Yeah, it fell off. It, went, it overtook him. It went past him. He, he, hit, he pressed the brakes for the first corner. The wheel fell off, and the wheel passed him on the inside and rolled off into the, into the greenery. So, yeah. How does that happen? How does the wheel just fall off? It, it falls off when the car is badly made, That's to put it mildly. It happened three times the wheel fell off. So, um, yeah, we never really, I, I wouldn't recommend that particular car. Actress Kelly Hu once explained how her car choices always seemed to be influenced by who she was dating at the time. My family never had a brand new car. I was the first one to have a brand new car. Um, my mom actually didn't want me to get my license because until I was 18 because my brother had gotten into three accidents. We had like a duster and like just like really old junky cars. Um, and then um, and then I got into this pageant when I was 16 and I won a car. So then my mom had to make had to let me get my license at 16. <laughs> wow. 
So what kind of car was it? What do you remember about it? It was an RX-7. Remember those? They were awesome. And, um, and I was dating a guy at the time who would not let me get an automatic. He's like, you can't get a sports car and drive an automatic. So I got it in a stick shift, but I lived on a hill that was so steep, I tore the heck out of that clutch. For the longest time, it was, it was such a, um, a thrill to be able to just, you know, like sort of, you know, stick it to my mom. So the fact that the fact that the boyfriend didn't want you to get an automatic did that kind of hasten the exit of that relationship because you were going wait a minute I'm having so much fun with this stick shift car thanks to you he was right though because now I have no problem driving a stick of any kind I've driven giant trucks and everything really what was the giant in a movie or just regular oh, just like um, you know 15 passenger vans and stuff I, I also dated a guy in a band so. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. I don't know. I'm sensing uh, you you and the boyfriends and your car relationship seem to be pretty close. Is it? Am I uh, crazy on that? No, no. I'm not even going to go into that because okay, it's a little well, embarrassing. Movie role that you've ever had that had anything to do with cars? Oh, they don't let me drive much. <laughs> I don't think it's because I'm Asian or anything. No, no, of course not. Um, I really can't think of a car that I drove. I did drive a motorcycle, though. I got a motorcycle license when I was doing Nash Bridges because uh, my character drove a motorcycle. Right. Yeah. Did you actually drive the motorcycle? Yeah, I got a license and everything. Oh, okay. Uh huh. And I had a couple of motorcycles. You know, Harley, uh, Indian, uh, KTM. Yeah, the, they were all given to me. Okay, so you're a motorcycle chick. You just rattled off all the names of these motorcycles. Because they gave them to me. To drive or per to, have. to have? To have. So how many bikes do you have now? Zero. <laughs> There's a story there. Go ahead. I've had a lot of boyfriends since then. <laughs> Ray Evernham is the host of Americarta on Velocity, and we both apparently asked an iconic race driver one simple question. Uh, on this show, I got John Force one day. And we were talking for an extended period of time. And one of the questions, I asked him a very simple question. What was your first car? And he told me. I know what it was. Well, wait a minute. He told me. My first car was a 54 Chevy. Four-door, I hated it. We cut off the rear door handles to make it look like a two-door. <clears throat> Had a six-cylinder motor, three-speed on the column. Of course, I put a big old General Motors Cadillac in it with six carburetors and a B&M Hydro and and I ruined a perfectly good car. We do the interview, we post it on our podcast, which that year was on soundcloud.com. I come home, I turn your show on, and you ask him a simple question. What was your first car? I had a 60 Ford I bought used off a car lot, six cylinder, three speed on the column. First thing I did was pull that motor out. I put a big Ford Interceptor motor, which had in the police cars in those early days back in the 60s. And four speed on the floor, and my dad hated it. He was not a racer. He wanted, no, he, everything was make a living and, and feed yourself. But we cruised Harvey's Broiler, a famous place in those days, Tweedy Boulevard, and we drag raced. He told me it was a Ford. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, he's something else. You know, you gotta love, uh, you gotta love John. And when you say you ask him a simple question, you know, with me, I only have a 22-minute show, uh -huh. so when I ask him a question, we just stand back and let him roll. But you know, I, I love John Force, but he told me it was a Ford, and and uh, 
I don't remember him saying 53 Chevy. Now, imagine the look on my face when he's telling you to your face that it's a 60 or 61 Ford something, and he's going on and on and on. And I kept, I kept thinking, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, that's, that can't be true. He's t-. And I, you know, I looked at that, and I thought, when you talked to him, was he still sponsored by Ford? Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I'm doing. So, okay, you know, that, the one thing John is really great at is representing his sponsors. So he had made the, the uh, switch from, uh, from Ford to Chevy about there. You know, so I guess what John had made, we just call it – Maybe it was just an American Motors product he had. <laughs> and, I, and I must say, for the people that are listening to the podcast, when I told you what he told me, you, you really were at a surprise, you know, really, I could take it back, surprise expression on your face. Yeah, you know, I remember that uh, that show. That, that was a show we, we had John in there, and uh, we also had Don Perdome. And that's the one great thing about Americana, getting to spend time with guys like that that are willing to share their stories. You, When you hear things firsthand from the people that actually did them it's really amazing and uh and john uh and don and just about any, anybody that we've we've invited on has been very gracious but uh that was a special show for us having both those guys on after we did that interview i caught up with john at sema and asked him yeah well, why did you give me one answer and ray another he basically said both answers were right the chevy was the first car the ford was the first car he bought off a lot and then winked as he walked along his way. Christy Lee of All Girls Garage and Barrett Jackson fame is also quite a fan of motorcycle racing, and she gave me a bit of a clinic about racers who practically touch the racetracks with their knees while driving. Uh, yes, I have a, quote, dragged knee before. So um, what's interesting, and this will be a little tidbit for you as well, for those who may not know as much in the motorcycle world, um, dragging knee can definitely be a kind of status symbol in the motorcycle world of, you know, I, I drug knee, like, you know, you're just that good to get your knee down. Um, but really, for the professional level racers, like the top level racers, say MotoGP, um, Putting their knee on the ground is actually a barometer for how far over they can tip the bike. So when they put their knee out, really what they're doing is they're trying to gauge the lean angle on the motorcycle. And that's kind of where they know that their threshold is when they're racing. So putting your knee down isn't necessarily like, oh, I put my knee down, I'm going this fast. Or I need to put my knee down to, you know, protect yourself from tipping over. Really, it's about, you know, knowing your boundaries on the motorcycle. So it's for, for the higher level racers and the top of the world level racers, like they're putting their knee down because they have to. That's got to be something that takes a while to get used to right? and not get used to as much, but to get proficient enough to be able to do it without falling on said knee. Um, you can hang off a motorcycle as much as you really want to, but there's a really good chance that you might mess up. Um, so riding a bike can be a pretty intimidating thing. Um, and I have a tremendous level of respect for the top level racers because it is an extreme difficult sport. So for the people listening that are motorcycle riders on this, uh, listening to the podcast and they want to uh, kind of impress their friends, I just want to know the way to say it. Do you say I dragged knee or I drug knee? What what is the what is the right way to say it? Um, you, know, you just say drag knee, or you know, some a lot of times people say things like you know tap a puck or anything like that. So the the big tap a puck, <laughs> the big uh, big round things you see on race leathers, knee pucks. All right. So <laughs> most right. of the time it's just drag knee. I'm sorry, I thought you were going hockey on me. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, they're they're pucks. They're pucks. Car customizer John D'Agostino and his celebrity customs have made quite a few award-winning cars with an Elvis theme. And there's a good reason. 
Did you know John is quite an Elvis fan? Elvis owned many 59 Cadillacs, but this is a tribute to Elvis. This is something that if Elvis was living today and he saw any of the cars, the first, the second, or the third, he would have bought all three of them, guaranteed. He'd be your best friend and best customer probably. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have put together some incredible stuff in this. And, and what do you have under the hood? Under the hood is a, is a stock, uh, actually, Cadillac engine, completely gone through, built in Italy, all fabricated in Italy, and all chromed, detailed. If you look at it close, it's got a, a history on it. It talks about one of Elvis's records, one of his last records he did, tells a story, and it's all engraved right in, right in the front of the car. Does it go without saying that John D'Agostino is an Elvis fan? Oh, without a doubt. It's funny because in 2007, when I had the first Elvis, a friend of mine, that guy, the wife passed away. She was a huge Elvis collector. They went through the last 10 years, from 1967 to 77, every concert, they were, they were actually groupies with him. I bought her whole collection. I got 45 boxes full of letters, anything that came with Elvis. I don't care if it's magazines, newspapers, teddy bears, I don't care what it is, I have it. I even have stuff from when he was in the Army, 1957. Small Polaroids, probably a couple dozen, signed by him and his lieutenant. So I got some special stuff and I've only went through four or five boxes. What do you do? I mean, okay, this may sound like a silly question. I mean, I, I collect stuff from time to time, not Elvis stuff, but do you display them? What do you do with it? You know, I have one room that I display some, but you know what? I would probably need a 10,000 square foot museum. I was gonna say. Yeah, I can. <laughs> that must be yeah. some heck of yeah. a room. So once in a while, I, I'll go through half a box and it, I, I go crazy. When I look at some of this stuff, I mean, from Ted Hodge to, to the, his manager, to his friends, I have letters, actual letters, Priscilla, when they, were, they were at a wedding in Sacramento area, wedding in Los Angeles. These people followed him like family. If you've ever watched Barrett-Jackson auctions on Velocity and Discovery, you've run across Steve Magnante and Mike Joy. They've watched countless cool classic cars cross the auction block. And I was always wondering, were they ever tempted to actually put out their own bids to buy those cars? You know, we can bid on cars. My stage partner, Mike Joy, has actually bought some cars up there. But me, you know, I have six cars, and I'm okay. There are some times when I say, man, I, I could have bought that car, and I kind of should have because it went cheap. But in the end, I'm, I'm here to make money, you know, and, and to look at the cars and stuff. And I, it's true. You can only drive one car at a time, folks. You have a fleet of 100 cars. You can only drive one at a time. So I'm okay. I, but I've never bought one here. But who's to say? I, I won't say I never will. We can if we want, but when we're on stage, we're told if we're going to start bidding, lay out and don't talk about the car because it's a clash of interests. Well, yeah, I was going to say, wouldn't that be kind of weird? No, it's got a great engine here. And by the way, oh, by the way, I'll take uh, 120 on that. Yeah, yeah. My, Mike Joy, he's done that. Actually, I think four Seriously? years ago. Yeah, well, no, no. He's never talked about the car. He says, hey, Steve, I'm going to bid on this one. You take it. You got it, Mike. No problem. And it was, I think, a 71 429 Torino that he bought well. And I think he still has. But he's we can bid on him. But I, I just don't at this point in time. So that, that is hysterical just to think about. If we do, so basically, if we're, we're listening to you guys and it's just you and Rick and we don't hear Mike, it's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe what, what happened to Mike? Well, could it be he's bidding on the car? <laughs> it has happened. <laughs> I have a bidder pass. Uh, I have bought cars at Barrett-Jackson. We may later this year go and consign one and try to sell one at Barrett-Jackson. So, um, yeah, I'm not immune to the lure of the cars. Usually I find there are people willing to pay more than I am. But, yeah, there are a couple of cars I've been committed to and, and that I've bid on, and kind of my deal with the TV network is they would prefer that I not talk on the air about a car that I'm going to bid on. 
So I don't go up there saying, oh, boy, this, you know, this, uh, the paint's awful and this doesn't, and then raise my hand, you know, so that would, that would not be very good. No, but take me through that because you're, you're sitting there. Do you know the car's coming up in advance? I assume you do. Oh, yeah. And, and you're sitting there doing your thing, and then all of a sudden, how does, what's the next step? Well, first, only a neophyte decides to bid on a car when they see it roll up on the block. You know, usually you've been out looking at the cars in the tents, talking to the consigners, doing your research on the history of these cars, what's right, what's wrong, what's fair, what's foul, what needs to be improved, what you can live with. And then you reasonably set a bid range, which you promise not to exceed and usually do. So, no, I'll let our producers know I'm bidding on this car. Don't don't go to me. And my wife will sit at home going, he's not talking, he's not talking, he must be bidding. Oh, no, no, t- no, tell me he's not bidding. And then if I jump in in the commentary, she knows that, that the car has passed me and somebody else is going to pay more for it. And, and then, then she's very happy again. She likes cars, but not to the extent of what our garage is full of. I was going to say, how many do you have? Uh, in case she hears this, several. Several? Yeah, several. Okay. Well, okay. We, we won't expand on that. Have you ever, you and Magnante or anybody else there, have you guys ever liked the same car or wanted to bid on the same car? You know, we have very different, it seems we have very different tastes. I don't ever recall a situation here competing with one of my colleagues for a car. Uh, Ray Evernham and I, both growing up in the NASCAR modified world, we do like a lot of the same cars. Uh, but he veers off and tends towards Plymouths, where I tend to kind of kind of go the other way. This year, talking about cars even broadcast highlights of a wedding. Irwindale Speedway announcer Bob Beck married his longtime girlfriend Peggy right there on the track. We were driving down the road on the way to another car show and started talking, when are we going to do this? You know, we we haven't set a date. And we had just released the schedule for Irwindale and Night of Destruction. Sounded appropriate for a wedding to me. <laughs> yeah, we wanted it more in the summertime and having our friends and family to be able to get here and, and those with cars could get here and those without cars could still enjoy and be here with us and celebrate and that's what we felt was the best part of this venue. I got an unusual wedding as well the first time I got married. We did a sports wedding. We had certain family members who looked at us like we were crazy and what are you doing tampering with you know the, the way you're supposed to do the straight and narrow but did you have anybody say uh, are you guys serious? Were they joking? No, they were all excited about coming out here, and we had fr- family from Utah and Nevada and other places come out because it was going to be a fun wedding. Yeah, and that's basically what it was. It was we told them it, no one really objected or had it. They just said, "Ah, oh, yeah, you guys are car people. That's a cool idea." You guys had an opportunity to do your own vows. Uh, now, how did that come about? And especially you, Bob, because you had the more. No offense, Peggy, you did fine. Bob, you're a little creative. Let's just put it that way. Well, yeah, you know me, and and talking, you know, we we do something somewhat similar. I'm always finding ways of saying something differently, and this was a perfect opportunity for me to say that. Ask her to, you know, her ask her the vows or do the vows differently. And since we're both car people, I threw cards into the mix, and you know, for better or for worse, for this, yeah, for toes and running out of gas and that yeah that's more like us to be your husband in marriage and car collecting racing and hot rodding i promise to love you with all my heart even though you drive a ford to be patient when you stall the engine 
kind when you grind the gears, and unselfish when you want to drive, and I'll always love you. I promise to sit beside you when you drive your hot rod, in times of joy, when you get another trophy, in times of trial, when you break down the road, in times of sorrow, where we have to be towed. I pledge myself and all the way I am love to you, baby. This appeared to be quite an endeavor. Tell us the truth. It went pretty smoothly, but how crazy was it behind the scenes? It really wasn't that crazy behind the scenes. It's just a matter of getting all the cars together and people with their wristbands and telling family where they needed to be at to go get their wristbands and just show up and <laughs> brave, brave whatever it is and come on out. Yeah, Irwindale Speedway did a great job of helping us out. We have 200 friends and relatives that came here. They supported that. We've got the car show area full of over 50 hot rods and muscle cars and customs and, and race cars. They allowed that. They did a press release for it. It's been in the local newspapers. It's been on the websites. You know, they stepped up and helped us make this one of the most exciting events around. To the power vested in me by God the Father and the state of California, I now pronounce you man and wife. And uh, I think we're going to try and top it next year. We're going to have an anniversary cruise called Rings and Rods 2. And we're going to ask people if they want to uh, get married at our cruise night to come to Rings and Rods 2. Spike Ferriston hosts Car Matchmaker on Esquire TV, admitting he got much of his love of cars from his former boss, David Letterman. Exactly. He restored all of his original vehicles, <laughs> a Pontiac Fiero. That's a hundred point restoration <laughs> done. <laughs> and that old truck because of, yeah, I shouldn't laugh because I had Pontiac. We it. have Pontiac people that listen. Yes. But no, yes. but it's not. There, there's anything wrong with Pontiac? It's no. like why would you do a hundred point car restoration on a Fiero? Anyway, mm -hmm. they they catch fire that, and they're called the Fiero. Um, Dave, you know, I'm trying to think back. Um, word got out on the staff that I liked cars. And I, I I can't actually tell you what I liked about them, but I but I but, but I was just passionate about it. But I, I knew nothing. I really knew nothing about cars of the car world compared to compared to now. And I remember when Dave heard about that. This is you know a story I think we all relate to is mm -hmm. when you hear about another one, absolutely another person with this illness. <laughs> you say, "Come <laughs> it on, is. Yes, come that's on so up." True. And Dave would start calling me up to his office uh, and showing me ads in the back of Auto Week. Go, mm -hmm. he would go. Yeah, you know, I remember calling me up one day, and uh, you know, you think first. I'm getting fired, <laughs> yeah. or well, maybe I'm just getting notes on something I wrote. Uh -huh. But it would always be Dave with an auto week cracked open, and he'd go, "Hey, hey, Spike, check this out. It's a ground effects rabbit," and I'd be like, "What?" He's like, "It's a rabbit with ground effects." I go, "Well, what's ground effect? Oh, aerodynamics. It's 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 a rabbit that someone's modified. You got to buy this." <laughs> so it was always a real, and we had. Uh, I remember once we were involved in a uh, charity go kart race. Mm -hmm. Um, that I had pitched, um, just, you know, Briggs and Stratton Motors and go-karts for a charity for MS. And there was going to be a Letterman team. This, by the way, the first Letterman racing team. And uh, the Thursday before the race, Dave came uh, into my office. He goes, what are you doing here? And I go, well, I'm right in the top ten. He goes, I, I know, but you got to race this weekend. Bizarre that Dave came down a few floors, but to in your office never happens. Uh -huh. And I said, "Well, I got it right." He goes, "Not today. You got to win this race." <laughs> I said, well, what What do you expect me to do? He goes, "I expect you to win. Fifth place is not acceptable." 
<laughs> no pressure and there. I said, so, he said, so get your ass out to Long Island to the racing shops and see what you can do. Wow. Get ass springs, whatever it is. <laughs> if you're not, you know, pushing the rules a little bit, you're not trying to win. <laughs> <laughs> Did they send a camera? Uh, well, I went out to the speed shops mm-hmm. and learned about how to hot rod a Briggs and Strat <laughs> lawnmower <laughs> engine, how to put sneak racing gas into an engine. Uh-huh. Um and we won. We were competitive out there, and we actually won. And we're then disqualified for these modifications oh, that I had boo. made to the motor. And we it was the worst nightmare for Dave because we came in fifth. They said, we're not going to completely bust you down, but, you know, still oh. a victory. But that's how passionate he is about cars. Then there's NHRA pro stock driver Erica Ender-Stevens on the cars she wishes she could find and get back someday. Yep, 1967 Chevelle Supersport that my dad and I built together and um, you know, ended up having to sell it in 2007, and um, I I said I'm going to find it one day if I ever make enough money to buy it back and um, surprise my dad with it because it had a lot of sentimental value, and we just uh, got in one of those situations where we had to get rid of it, and it sucked, so I'm going to find it one day if somebody hasn't ruined it because it was, like, beautiful, pristine show car, but it had a 468 under the hood, and nice. um, one of the guy that built my super gas, super comp motors, Tommy Costales from Houston Engine and Balancing, he built that engine for us, and it was uh, just such a badass car, and I- I'm going to find it one day. <laughs> did you ever see that commercial that Chevy did, the one where the, the family was looking for the dad's old 65 Impala? Dear God, that's my old Chevy. We got it, Pop. You're kidding me. <laughs> Yeah. Come on. Really? Oh, no. Yeah. God, I'm gonna have a heart attack. Where'd you get it? We found it. We found it. No, I can't talk. I know. It took five years. Really? Hear me? It's all good, Dad. We found it. Wow. That's what I have pictured for happening with my dad in the future, so I'm going to try my best to find it one of these days. Any idea where it is? I don't know. I know the guy that we sold it to um, passed away, so I'm not sure where it went after him, Um, but I do know that he put air conditioner on it, which he totally cut up the firewall, which was beautiful, and um, that'll make you want to puke, but um, I'm sure I can fix it if I find it. All right. Anybody out there uh, in our listening range, in the podcast range, uh, if you've heard of that 67 Chevy Malibu, it's super sport, right? 67 Chevelle. Sure. Just 67 Chevelle. Was it a 300 or a Malibu? It was red and pretty. It was red and pretty. I know that. I'm a girl. you got to remember that. Yeah. Okay. About that. Yeah, of course you are. I understand that. Cars that you would want someday. Is there anything that you look ahead? I mean, you're kind of busy nowadays racing and stuff and, and living day to day. Is there a car out there one day, whether it be classic or anything else, that you thought, wow, I'd like that's number one on my list someday? Well, my dad and I right now are building a 57 Nomad and um, just got a 500 inch fuel injection motor for it last night. So that's pretty cool. He's he's really into hot rods and building that stuff. I like the old type of cars. So if I can't ever find that 67 Chevelle, I might want to build one of those again one day. I love a 69 Camaro. That's pretty cliche, but I think they're a beautiful car. Um, As far as dream cars go that I'll probably never have, um, but one can wish is that that two-door Bentley. I mean, they're a couple hundred grand, which is stupid. You could buy a house for that, but if I just fell upon a bazillion dollars, that's probably what I'd buy, but I'm a truck girl. My brother-in-law's got this big old gray jacked up F-250 diesel truck, and um, I really like that. So 
I don't I don't know. That's my thing. You know, I'll have a house that's like small and I'll have a 16 car garage full of fun toys. So that'll be uh, that's my goal. That's a pretty good goal, actually. Very good, very good goal. I, I'm always interested in uh, the possibility of. I told you I was at SEMA and I listened to uh, you guys on the dais. Uh, I interviewed Shirley Muldowney over the phone the other day, and I asked her above the women drivers that are going on now. Who's your favorite? Well, my I have a favorite, but the best out there, bar none, is Erica Enders. She's she is. You know, I'm I'm really uh, struggling for a, a word that would describe what she is. You know, she's got the style, she's got the... But her ability in the car and her knowledge of what's going on and her knowledge of what is about to happen with the car, uh, she knows her equipment better than any of the girls out there, and she has obviously proved that. Uh, her career has only just begun. What, what does that make you think? That's pretty awesome. It's, uh, you know, I grew up as a huge fan of Shirley's. I'm still a huge fan, obviously, but over the years she became a mentor and eventually a friend. So it's uh, pretty cool to have her in my corner. And I could sit there and listen to her stories for hours. I mean, she what she did for, for the women in our sport, paving the way, she did it in an era where it wasn't okay for women to compete on the on a level playing field with men in a male-dominated uh, sport. So she's uh, she's tough, and she uh, she definitely means business. So I uh, I look up to her for that, and it's uh, it's a huge honor for her to speak so highly of my driving. It, it means the world to me. You said we were talking about the movie. I think we talked to you on the uh, on Can X once, and you were talking about you've seen the Shirley Dahl Downey movie. I have Heart Like a Wheel. I've seen it a hundred times, but um, that was pretty neat. And then at, you know, my sister and I in '03 had a Disney movie made after us, our life stories, but it was about junior drag racing. So it's a lot different than Heart Like a Wheel, but I still feel like I, I still felt like I had like a little bit of uh, something in common with Shirley having a movie out there. At Barrett-Jackson in Scottsdale in January, Chris Jacobs and I got to play Bandit Trivia while sitting in a promo car for one of the Smokey and the Bandit movies. Smokey and the Bandit Trivia. Nice. Right here for you. Nice. Uh, uh, one interesting note, though. They, of course, was uh, Atlanta to Texarkana and eventually dropped the beer off somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, in Boston or something. And according to IMDB, which is where I got all this information from, if they had done that, in the right amount of time as based on the movie, they would have had to be going 121 miles an hour on an average. Now, what kind of different movie would that have been? Yeah, that would have been fun. That would have been more like a vanishing point. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. All right. All right, Chris. All right. How many Dukes of Hazard TV stars were in Smokey and the Bandit? Zero, one, or three? One, Catherine Bach. That was wrong. Oh, um, but she you... is one of them, right? No, no, not according Captain to IMDb. Wasn't in there. Not according to IMDb. It was John Schneider, Sonny Schroyer, who played Enos, and Ben Jones. Oh, well, all right. I'm all for one. All right, that's okay. That was one of my favorite TV shows. That's too. okay. Two. How long did it take for Jerry Reed to write the song Eastbound and Down? Was it two weeks, two days, two hours? Two hours. You are correct. Nice. Very good. It's almost a loaded question right there because you know you know it's got to be something that you wouldn't be able to believe. So, what a great song too. Yeah. He's bound and down, loaded up and trucking. got a long way to go and a short time to get there. But he's bound to watch a bandit run. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
I think that's our big hit. All right. Who was originally supposed to play the bandit? It wasn't Burt Reynolds. In fact, they hired a guy. Was it Elvis Presley, Jerry Reed, or Sally Field? <laughs> I will have to go with... It can't be Elvis. Elvis was in his fat and bloated stage at that point, wasn't he? <laughs> we'll have to go with Jerry Reed. You are correct. Nice. Very good. Very good deduction. <laughs> Two of three for Chris. All right. How many movies did Burt Reynolds, and this this will come in handy because you're in Entertainment Tonight alone. How many movies did Burt Reynolds and Sally Field actually do together? Okay. One, four, or six? Probably four. You are correct. Nice. Three of four. Nice. Smokey and the Bandit, one and two. Right. They also did Hooper. Right. And The End. Great movie. All within about five years. Hooper is another great movie. Hooper was a great movie. I just remember Sally Field going, Hooper! So I know that they were in that one together. <laughs> Absolutely. Very good. All right, here we go. Jackie Gleason modeled Buford T. Justice after who? A, a sheriff who once pulled him over. B, Hal Needham, or three, Burt Reynolds' dad. A sheriff who once pulled him over. You are absolutely wrong! Oh. Oh, and, oh. No, it was actually Burt Reynolds' dad. Really? Yeah, Burt, I guess, told him a lot about him and all that, and that that's was pretty it. cool. But that's not bad. You've done, you've only missed two. That's pretty good. And pretty final good. one. All right. What engine did the Trans Am that went over the bridge, remember that great scene, yes. the greatest stunt yes. of all, right. destroyed the car. Mm -hmm. What kind of engine was in that car? Was it an Olds, a Chevy, or a Pontiac? I'm gonna say they probably just stuck a little Chevy 350 in there. Did you say Chevy? I said Chevy. Did I hear Chevy? You heard Chevy. You are correct! Nice! Very good! And Chris was Jacobs. it a 350? That I don't know, but I know it was a Chevy. It probably <laughs> I went too was. Far. I very went too good. Far. Thank you very much. Richard Rawlings of Gas Monkey Garage also had a chance to join me in the car. He's an avid collector, we know that. But guess what piece of memorabilia he also owns? Well, I got a little Burt Reynolds trivia for you. Uh oh, here we go. Okay. Everybody knows the hat. Yes. You know, the black hat from uh, Smoking the Bandit Correct. 2 with the feathers and all that stuff on it. Where exactly does that hat reside? I'm going to take a wild guess and say Gas Monkey Garage? Yes, it does. Hey! <laughs> hey! That's, wow! He came up to me after filming, and I get goosebumps right, right, right now talking about it. He goes, you know what this is? I said, well, yes, sir. I think everybody in the world knows what that is. And he goes, well, I didn't know who I was going to give it to, but I'm going to give it to you. Really? Like, sir, I said, I can't take that. And, and he did it in just true Burt fashion. He goes, oh, you will. <laughs> yes, sir. I mean, I don't think I shed a man tear. I was like, holy cow. So it sits at my desk, and, uh, you know, um, that is, for, for me, being 46 years old, growing up, watching all of Burt's movies, getting to work with him once, and, uh, and, and just, it, it shaped my life. Unbelievable. Very, very cool. NFL on CBS Sports announcer James Brown owns not one, but two cars from the collection of late NFL icon Reggie White. He had two 1950 Mercuries. His son wanted one of them that had been completed because he took it to his prom. The second one was in, in restoration in upstate Michigan. 
So I moved it from there when that shop closed, and it has been since we last talked. The car should be ready in about the next six weeks. And that, that reflects the fact that I had so many cars that I had in various states of completion that I realized I'm shelling out a lot of money putting these cars together because five and a half months out of the year, I'm doing this. So I only had another, you know, five months effectively before the football season started. So it made sense to get rid of them. But I'm keeping that one because it has personal meaning. Doesn't that remind you, though, of the old joke about a guy who found a 35-year-old cleaner's tag or something like that? He goes into the cleaners and he says, you know, this sounds crazy. I found this. My father used to have it. You know, what does it go to? The guy looked at it and he goes, it'll be ready Thursday. (laughs) I never heard that one. That's awesome. A perfect description of what I've been trying to explain to my wife about some of the cars that are in restoration because I've got One other one is a 1941 Chevy Cabriolet that I probably purchased about seven years ago that hopefully will be ready by the spring of the year as well, too. At this age and stage in life, while I still like a thumper, if you will, something that's got a nice hard-hitting sound to it, wicked camshaft, it's nice to have a car you could just sit in, turn the key, have like an LS motor in there, and just drive it anywhere and enjoy it. And that's what I'm looking for. Then there's Dan Short of Phantom Works, the show on Velocity. He has a car shop in Virginia where he rebuilds classics. But Dan's car career got off to a pretty slow start. I got my first collector car at 19. It was a 67 Camaro. And I, I it was a bit of a funny story. The guy I bought it from asked me what I was going to do with it. And I told him I was going to restore it. And he thought that was admirable. 19-year-old guy's going to go restore a car. And, and when I got home, I realized I had no idea how to open the hood. And so I had to call him and ask him how to open the hood. And he laughed at me on the phone and said, you're going to restore the car? And I said, yeah, just, just tell me how to open the hood. I'll restore the car. And uh, so that's really how it all started. And I, I ended up just becoming almost a shop groupie. I mean, I swept floors. I did whatever I could to hang out in shops and learn the trade. And then I read every book I could get my hands on and went to night school uh, to do things like uh, auto body repair and just learn every trade I could in the car world. And eventually, just through years and years of practice, actually you know, started doing it on my own. Car guys know it's hard to build any classic car, and sometimes it's even harder because life gets in the way. But then there's life getting in the way, and then there's what pinstriper Johnny Martinez had to go through for his project. I bought this truck in 1993, so I was starting to work on it 94, 95. But uh, along the way, raising kids, it was just normal things. And then, uh, you know, the great earthquake hit. And it shambled my house pretty good. In 2001, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, that, that, was, that was a hard deal. We had to deal with that. Uh, and I was helpless with her, you know. And so the car went on a back burner. And that was one of the biggest, biggest things that, that put this on hold. Uh, not ever knowing that four years later I'd be diagnosed with cancer. And so we dealt with that again, and it was another two years before I was able to get back on it. Johnny's 29 truck, Wicked and Suede, eventually became a Grand National Champion. Hey, remember Rodney Allen Rippey, fast food spokesman? 
now a Corvette and Mustang guy who still likes fast food. 14 years as a spokesman for Jack in the Box. Yep. Do you have like a magic card that you could just go to any <laughs> Jack in the Box in the country and get anything for free? I, I could only wish. I could only wish. But you Really? Know, you know, I, you know, 14 but, years as a spokesman for Jack in the Box. I'd think if you wanted a Jack Taco, two yep. Jack Tacos and a Jumbo Jack or something like that, you could just go... <clears throat> Rodney Allen Rippey, this is my this is my I can buy anything. This is my card. gold card. This is your gold card. My Jack gold in the box has a gold card. Oh, you know what? Maybe maybe someday. You know, I'm I've always been very, you know, happy to to talk about the experience and, and a lot of times I'll do interviews and they run the commercials and and from talk shows and, and I don't care, you know, but it, it's great, you know, because that was a, a moment in my life that, you know, that's what started it all and, and um but yeah. I, there, but there is one Jack in a Box in Huntington Beach. I walked in one day just to go get a burger. You know, I was mm-hmm. down in Huntington, and this guy looked at me, and he goes, "Are you Rodney Allen Rippey?" And I go, "Yeah." And he goes, "Everybody to the front! Everybody to the front!" And everybody comes running to. He was the owner, I guess, uh-huh. the friend. And he goes, "Do you see this man? You never charge this man for anything." There you go. It's because of him that you're here. And Huntington these, Beach these, Jack in the Box. <laughs> all these young kids were all like shaking in their boots. He goes, he is an icon. He is our corporate. He was our spokesman, you know, and he was a great guy. Really good. So I got I got a couple locations I can get a burger. <laughs> <laughs> Just a burger. Yeah, well, there all right. You go. Yeah, they'll make me pay for the sodas. But that's uh, but it's okay. It's a deposit thing. There you go. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> They say hindsight is twenty twenty. Back in the day, Tony Dow of Leave it to Beaver fame was driving a Corvair that he got from his dad, eventually decided to sell it, only to get it back 51 years later. Of course, the question that wasn't really covered in any other stories, what was the car he bought after he sold that Corvair? I sort of w- got it down to two cars, and one was the Corvette, which I liked, and that was, I think it was maybe $3,500, maybe, something like that. And uh, a Gullwing 300 SL, oh, which was right. $4,200. Right. So I'm looking at now, it. This was 19 what? Well, let's see. 65, 65 66, okay. something like that. Okay. So I'm, uh, I'm looking at this uh, Gullwing, which I've always thought is one of the most beautiful cars in the world ever. And... Um, and I, so I asked the guy, I said, well, what about tune-ups and stuff? What, you know, what's the deal? He said, well, the tune-ups are really expensive. I mean, you know, it's, it's like 300 bucks to get this thing tuned up. Oh, my. And I said, oh, well, I don't want to have a car that I have to spend that much money on. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go for the Corvette. So basically, I bought the Corvette, sold it cheaper than I bought it, and uh, didn't buy the uh, Gullwing, which for 4200 which would be worth about a quarter of a million dollars by now. I right, especially for a guy who never gets rid of his cars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I also tend to destroy the cars, you know. If I... And then there's Russo and Steele's Drew Alcazar. His wife, she gets the whole car guy thing. Wait till you hear how I figured that out. Uh, I'm probably best known for the Boss 429 that uh, Josephine let me park in our living room. Uh, Seriously? Yep, yeah, it's... Uh, as long as my guests don't use it as a coaster for their cocktails. Uh. Now, wait a minute. I, I'd like to know how you broached her on that. I mean, it's not every day you can go to your wife and say, uh, Honey, uh, I like. I just bought a car. Can I put it in the... Can we move the couch? Well, uh, it started off, we were looking at houses, and we walked into this one place, and it was like a football field. And uh, I said, Wow, you could park a car in here. And she said, oh, That sounds kind of cool. And I thought, Wow, okay, that was my moment. You have the best wife ever. 
I, I tell people that all the time. It's, it's not cool that I parked a car in my living room. It's cool that my wife allowed me to park a car in my living room. There it is, just a sampling of the celebrities and car personalities you'll be hearing this year on our Talking About Cars podcast here on Radio.com. Plus, check out our interview videos on our Talking About Cars YouTube pages. And if you want to check out our other 80-plus previous podcasts, head over to TalkingAboutCars.net and look up guests. Don't forget to follow us, like us, and share our posts on our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join us again as we have some fun talking about cars.